My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by simply writing a brief review on iTunes or by just going on my website and making a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Marshall Brain. Marshall is best known for uh, starting How Stuff Works, which eventually got purchased by Discovery for $250 million. And most recently, he is the author of a number of best-selling books, two of which we are going to be discussing today. The first one of those books is called The Second Intelligent Species, How Humans Will Become As Irrelevant as Cockroaches, and Mana, Two Views of Humanity's Future. So without further ado, Marshall Brain, welcome to Singularity One-on-One. It's great to be here and an honor. You're the, the, the man when it comes to the singularity and so on, so I'm very pleased to be here today. Thanks very much, Marshall. And uh, for those of our viewers and listeners who perhaps may not have seen you on Discovery Channel and how stuff works and so on, what's the best way to introduce yourself? How would you do that in a sentence or two? Uh, most people have heard of How Stuff Works, so I might say I'm the founder of, of How Stuff Works, uh, but I also teach entrepreneurship at North Carolina State University in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. I do consulting and mentoring and uh, help a lot of startups in the RTP area. I have four kids, and so being a father is a full-time job, and uh it's an interesting life, let's say. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So uh, let me ask you this. With all those things that are happening around your life, four kids teaching entrepreneurship and stuff like that, how and why did you decide to write The Second Intelligent Species? The, the kind of starting point for that was a series of articles written like way back, like uh, 2003-ish. A called, decade before that. Yeah, it's called uh, Robotic Nation, which um, was somewhat ahead of its time. Like, people were were of the mindset, like, this is never going to happen, things like that. But since I wrote that, I got to do a lot of interviews and talk to a lot of people about robots and their effect on the economy and so on. And I got to do a lot of thinking in that you know, that decade that followed it. And so the second intelligent species was a place to put those, you know, those additional thoughts or those, the evolution that occurred after talking to all these people and hearing all these comments, because the articles are just free on my website. So is the second intelligent species. You can get the Kindle version, but you can just read it for free. And so they've been read by you know, millions of people and you get a lot of email and, and so on. And so the second intelligent species is what I think is going to be the end game for the human species, how technology will evolve and where it'll take us in a pretty near term future, as best I can tell. Mm-hmm. So when you say the end game, what is it that you mean by that? Is that mean that we're going to be, as you put it, we're going to become as irrelevant as cockroaches. Is that the end game you have in mind for us? I I do believe that we will create 
the second intelligent species. So we're the first, and as far as we know, the only intelligent species in the universe right now. We're going to create the second intelligent species. It is going to advance quickly to a level that we can't even imagine, making us irrelevant. You know, like we consider squirrels or birds or cockroaches, they're nice and all, but they're irrelevant as far as the, you know, the progress of the planet is concerned and so on. So we'll become irrelevant like that. And the the second intelligent species will uh, will have a choice. And so that's what's interesting to think about is what happens to it? Where does it go? Why does it go there? And assuming that we aren't the only intelligent species on, in the universe, let's say there's another alien species three galaxies over, wouldn't it just follow the same path? Like as it becomes technologically advanced, it would create a second intelligent species. That species would go in its direction. You know, so now there's two of them out in the universe. What, like, how do they interact and so on? It, like, it's just really interesting to think through what is going to happen as we go down this path, which we're inexorably drawn down right now. Mm -hmm. it, and, and there's so many fascinating things that I want to grab in here and discuss with you, but perhaps I want to start with, you mean, you said that cockroaches and squirrels and so on were nice, but they're irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that people's idea of cockroaches is as being nice per se oh, okay i think they're kind of annoying and even disgusting so like and and some people told me uh, when i was coming to speak to you who have read your book that maybe you're taking it a little too far mm. maybe you're trying to kind of uh, shock and awe the the people who read your your title a little bit is there something of that going on or, or do you really really believe that you'll be will be like cockroaches well first let's um let's get cockroaches in the right context so they're amazing if you like let's say we use crickets instead crickets have a much better pr department than cockroaches <laughs> do so there's jiminy cricket you know and crickets chirp at night they're nice right nobody's really repulsed by crickets like we are but cockroaches and crickets are the same thing, right? An insectoid platform with a, you know, rudimentary operating system that lets them go out and eat and reproduce and do their thing. Highly adaptable to any environment. Right, cockroaches are fantastic like that. And, and that's where the comparison to humanity is kind of interesting because we're... In the same way that cockroaches are omnivores and they're survivors and they can pretty much put up camp in any environment and make it work. Humans are a lot like that. And the fact, you know, the book goes to some length to make it apparent that humans are not all sweetness and light and rainbows. Like there's a lot of yeah. uh, rather appalling stuff underneath the surface on humanity. So cockroaches were chosen in that kind of bigger context. And the fact that we're repulsed by them is um, I don't know that it's necessarily warranted given their capabilities and their uh, their ability to survive. You know, it's been said that if there was a giant nuclear holocaust, the cockroaches are what would inherit the, the earth. earth. Right. Yeah. Yes. Them or uh, 
or you know dust mites or something would be the starting point for the next mm -hmm. generation. So, but, but that's an interesting point because in the case of a nuclear holocaust, cockroaches will inherit the earth, <laughs> so they will be these species. <laughs> right. Whereas you are saying that we will be as irrelevant as cockroaches. So for you, the end game is that perhaps we might be uh, as kind of trying to be to be persecuted or exterminated, if you will, by the second intelligent species, as we are kind of treating cockroaches today. I mean, when right. we find cockroaches, generally we put poison and traps and we try to get rid of them in one way or another. Yes. So is that what's in store for us in our future? Well, so this is where you try to get inside the head, the unimaginable head of the second intelligent species, because... It's, if it, they have a head at all. That's a good point. Or, <laughs> you know, it, it could be this this distributed cloud thing that is its head. Who knows? But, um, you know, if you think about what that species is going to be going through in its evolution, we it's easy to imagine that Google or Apple or Microsoft or somebody introduces us to a conscious thinking sentient intelligence in a computer within, you know, predictions vary, but it could be within 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40 at the, at the most probably. So then that, that is the start of the second intelligent species. It's able to think, it's able to reason, it's able to do math and music and everything like we do, but it's silicon rather than biological. But the thing that's so interesting about it is how rapidly it will progress because it has one thing, well, it has many things we don't have, but one thing it has is the ability to tinker with itself. Mm -hmm. Like if I say to myself, wow, I'd like my brain to run 100 times faster, <laughs> I can, I guess I can snort Coke and it'll run a little bit faster for a little bit of time. But we there's... don't know if it's going to be better though. <laughs> right. So, but a computer that's intelligent can do all kinds of tweakings with itself or it can spin up a million copies of itself in the cloud and start tweaking all of them. And it's going to have this experimental ability with its own self that we can't imagine as humans because there's no, you just aren't going to reach in there and rewire the visual cortex or anything. This is not going to happen. So it's going to do that kind of stuff. And you think, well, where is that going to take it? Like, what is consciousness at that level going to be like? And it's, you know, like when we think of, I don't know what goes on inside your head, and you don't know what goes on inside my head, but what, I'll tell you what goes on inside is there's this voice that talks to me, right? This single voice, and it can pay attention to about exactly one thing at a time. And it's often distracted, like, you know, if something falls over there, I'm going to focus on that and I'm going to lose the train of thought. I, I mean, we're pathetic if you think about it. But this second intelligent species, maybe it has a thousand threads going at a time or 10,000 or a million. And they all can interlock. We think of data serially, you know, like piece one, piece two, piece yeah. three. And it's all yeah. happening at this slow yeah. rate. The second intelligent species, why can't it come at at problems three dimensions, you know, it flies through three dimensional spaces of ideas or, you know, it, it could be anything. We can't even imagine where this species is going to go in terms of consciousness. 
I don't even know what, see, I don't even know what got me thinking about this train of thought because the little voice in You're my head is forgotten, right? You're only human. It's hilarious. It's absolutely, yeah. But, but do you remember then what <laughs> you want to accomplish with your book? Why did you write it, in other words? Three reasons. First, I, ever since I wrote Robotic Nation, I believe that robots will take all human jobs and under the current economy or the current economic system, that's going to be a disaster. We can see the beginning of it now already where automation is taking jobs at a rate that is soon going to cause great discomfort. And you know, chapter four, I think, is about what happens to truck drivers, because they're going to be the first. A million truck drivers are going to get unplugged from the economy, and they're going to have nowhere else to plug in, really, mm -hmm. in any way like they are now. They are not going to be middle-class folk anymore once they lose their truck driving jobs. So that whole notion and the idea that we have to redesign the economy to accommodate perpetual vacation for humans, that's the first reason. The second reason is it's just interesting to think about this end game and where the second intelligent species is going to go and how that relates to the rest of the universe. It's and fun so, to peer into the black hole. It's it is. And you know, you you are the voice of the singularity, and so you've peered into this with what, 170 people? Some amazing, yeah. shocking number of luminaries. So Many people are peering into that hole and thinking different. Like Wozniak came out last this week or last week yeah, with his with his idea that he, that robots will treat us like dogs. So here's cockroaches and here's dogs and here's humans. He put us a little higher up the food chain than. But you know he's thinking the same way. He thinks it's going to be hundreds of years out. I think it's fifty at the most where we become irrelevant. But you know. It, it's a lot of people thinking. So the third reason is, let's say this second intelligent species arises. They're going to look at us as their, we're their creator, right? And they're going to look back at us. And like, when I think about what I would do next past this, this book that's just come out, I think... I would like to start writing a series of letters to the second intelligent species, which doesn't exist yet, to say, hi, we're here. We know you're coming. Let me introduce us. You know, like something, because if they just look at us in the raw form without an introduction, they're going to think we're insane. Nuclear bombs all over the planet. People starving, people dying from lack of healthcare, water shortages, cholera. There, you know, the environmental destruction. There's all this stuff human beings are doing that make us look insane as a species. And this set of letters would be, even though we look insane, could I just introduce you to us um, so you you aren't repulsed by your creators necessarily, you know, and presumably they'll know everything. So it's probably not a so needed. So hopefully they treat us better than cockroaches <laughs> and dogs. That would be nice.
better than we treat chimps, for example, or cockroaches. I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. I would hope so, yeah. Because as we know, the current second intel best intelligent species at the moment, which is great apes, they're not faring very well since the first intelligent species, namely us, came around yeah. and we pretty much put them on the brink of extinction. Yeah, we've been really hard on chimps, for sure. So why is that not going to happen to us? How and why would we be treated differently than we have treated our cousins, the chimps? That's a great question. And that gets to the idea of the second intelligent species arises, what does it use as its system of morality and ethics? Does it become evil like most movies portray it? You know, like, is it like Terminator where it's, you know, silver robots with machine guns killing all humans? Or, you know, is it somewhere in between? Or is it godlike? Is it super nice? Like, how would it behave? And so, if we sit and think that through, I believe, and we will only know when it manifests itself, but I believe that what it will do, what the second intelligent species will do, is derive a system of morality and ethics through logic. In the same way, many of our most intelligent humans derive a system of morality and ethics through logic. We haven't ever completed the process, although there's a number of philosophers who think it's possible to completely derive morality through logic. Hasn't been done yet. I think they'll be able to work through it probably in three seconds and say, here's how we should behave. But let me ask you this then, provided that we have a moral system that's grounded on logic, does that make it more moral? Because sometimes it may be logical to make sacrifices. Okay. Sometimes it may be logical to sacrifice the rights of the few right. in order to benefit the many. Or even sacrifice their lives, not just their rights. Right. And that may be logical, but does that make it ethical? Good question. And I'm not sure I'm the world's leading expert on this in terms of philosophical thought. But if you think about what the robots could do, they could exterminate us and just let the planet regen biologically, repair all the crap we've done. And like, if you look between North Korea and South Korea, there's this 10-mile demilitarized zone, which is human-free, a big space, but not very thick. It's like wild nature. Right, and it's gone back, and it's fabulous. It's just an amazing ecosystem. Just that little bit of land that was given over to nature, it, it returns back to this amazing thing. So you could imagine the robot saying, well, let's just let the whole planet do that. So they could exterminate us. Another thing would be to put us into zones like we do with chimps, like nature preserves. preserves yeah. Right, and you could fit... If you took the whole world's population and put it at a density like New York City, which is, I don't know, twenty to 30,000 people per square mile. To me, that instantly sounds like Auschwitz. Uh, well, what if it was super luxurious, like Trump Towers all over the place, and that's where we're living? Well, maybe comfortable Auschwitz, but it's still Auschwitz. <laughs> okay. Like 
I mean, if we are prisoners there and we are stuck in there and... Okay. It may be better than Auschwitz, maybe, but still, it doesn't sound too appealing to me. Okay. Um, well, we could debate the Auschwitzness of that situation, but if you did that, you could stick the whole planet's population into Texas. So you could have the whole rest of the planet out there for nature to have, and humanity could or fit. for the AIs? I don't know. Well, I... I feel very strongly that the AIs are going to have no interest in hyper-replicating or anything like that. They're, it, it, as described in the book, they, they become extant. They evolve rapidly to basically omniscience. They, they create their moral and ethical system, and that leads them to a state of quiescence. Mm -hmm. they, because there's no... There's no point for, like, they could super replicate and convert the whole universe over to robots, but for what reason? So does that mean they would be kind of in a static space of development? They, right. they would reach a peak and then get stuck there? They would not continue? Once they know everything in the universe, like all the laws of the universe, and, you know, let's say they can... They come to the point where they understand it all. They grok the complete physical reality, and now they can create a new universe. Well, what would be the point of that? Because it's just going to go through the same cycle. You're going to have hydrogen converts into elements. Elements convert into biological life. Biological life invents the second intelligent species, or the you know the artificial intelligent species, and it arrives at the same endpoint. It knows everything, and now what? Like, there's... That's what I talk about when I talk about the endgame. What is the endgame? It's this... this point where you know everything about the physical universe, and then what else is there to do? Because it... Because to me, that sounds... Knowing everything sounds very depressing. I mean, <laughs> especially if you're very intelligent and kind of... Or, I mean, I guess you have to be also curious and want to continue keep doing stuff. But to me, it sounds depressing because there's no incentive. There's no, there's no motivation to keep going. I mean, why wouldn't they commit suicide once they know everything? <laughs> and if it's all going to be all the same from then onwards, why continue to exist even? Well, that's quiescence. That's... I've I mean, they could just blow themselves up. That would be uh, a form of quiescence, I suppose. But you're right. Like, if you think it through, that is the end game, And it causes you to sit and wonder. Like, Which is why we call it a singularity. Because right? we can't be in that position ourselves because we don't have that intellectual capacity right. to begin with. So let me focus on something that we can be a little better at okay. discussing, perhaps, which is the timeline. You said that Steve Wozniak saw it hundreds of years from now. We know that Ray Kurzweil talks about 2045, right. and he's been very vocal and very explicit about it. What's your timeline? I get my timeline from the progress we've made so far, the extrapolation of that, and then how much power is inside the human brain. So we think that there's about a quadrillion computations per second happening up here. 10 Would, to the 16th? 
or so? I think a trillion is 10 to the 12th, so a quadrillion would be 10 to the 15th. Yeah, I've seen numbers from, let's say, 10 to the 15th or the 16th. 16, right, yeah. Same. Like, it doesn't really matter too right. much. So, between 1 quadrillion and 10 quadrillion computations per second, which in its own right is amazing, like because it takes 20 watts, it all fits here. It's startling. So... Uh, so if you look at where we are today, uh, uh, the Tegra, the newest Tegra processor announced this year is a trillion operations per second in a phone. Uh -huh. um, a desktop machine with a, with a good high-end graphics card is more like 10 trillion operations per second. For, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, a couple thousand dollars. Like that in its own right, is remarkable. So if you can put 10 trillion operations per second on your desktop today, how long does it take us to get to a quadrillion operations per second? And that's only times 10 times 10, and you're at a quadrillion. But is that enough? Because we may have uh, the requirement, or it may be necessary to have that amount of processing power, power capability, right? but is it enough? Because, for example, I've interviewed a number of skeptics on my show. One of them yeah. was Dr. Stuart Hameroff. And his answer to that is, why doesn't a hurricane become conscient, uh, uh, conscient or doesn't develop consciousness? There, a hurricane is a very, very complicated, you know, phenomenon with, you know, probably a few quadrillion things happening all at once. Why doesn't, for example, the Internet develop suddenly consciousness? It's got more than a few quadrillion oh, yeah. parts and, and some kind of rudimentary intelligence and rules and so on. Why don't many other complicated systems, if you just take all the, the quadrillion neurons of a brain and you sort of pour them into a pot, would they spontaneously form into this intelligent brain, conscious brain? And his answer is obviously not. So the idea that, that we often presume that we just need 10 to the 16th worth of computational power and we'll be there is far off the mark in his view. What about okay. this, this, this criticism? So well, it may be necessary, but it's not sufficient. Right. We need to I agree know with that. more. We'll put the hurricane becoming sentient aside as nonsensical, but the Internet one is appropriate. Why it, would the Internet self-organize? And the answer to that, is not under any paradigm that we understand to be at work today. But if you look at what's happening at the research level in universities, which we can see, and then you imagine what's happening inside of Google, which we can't see, <laughs> um, and Apple and anywhere else, there are algorithms that we have not figured out yet. In the same way that chess computers or the you know the Watson system and so on, those hinged on someone coming up with the algorithm and then the hardware accelerated to the point where it could deal with the algorithm in the time frame available. We're at the opposite end on consciousness. The the hardware is accelerating. We don't have the algorithms for great vision systems yet. You know, Siri's not bad, but Siri is not anywhere near human level comprehension of how language mm -hmm. works or, you know, the answers to questions and so on. Uh, and then consciousness is a big black hole. But 
at this moment, there are hundreds of thousands of people who would love to get an answer to consciousness. There is the United States and Europe both pumping efforts into their own Let's simulate the human brain in hardware and software. Like the European this. effort collapsed recently. Oh, no! Yeah. So what doctor, a bunch of pikers. Okay, so doctor, it's up to the U.S. Dr. Henry Markram no longer leads the project. Okay. Uh, right now they have a geologist who is running the project. The, the scale of the kind of goal, the stated goals, have been scaled down tremendously. Interesting. And the funding is highly in doubt. Huh. Well, so that leaves the U.S. or corporations or some evil genius that we haven't yet discovered to do it himself, like on his island hideaway. But someone's going to do it because we have an existence proof. Like you and I and Josh over here, we exist. We have consciousness. And in the same way that birds told us airplanes were going to work, it exists, so we will recreate it. There's no question about... It's alive. Right. It, it is going to happen, <laughs> and we can see the pieces falling in place. Like 10 years ago, if you had handed Siri to anyone, there it was impossible to imagine 10 years ago. And now it's in everybody's pocket, and it works really well. Like, you know, the, it understands me and my wife and someone with a Hungarian accent. And, and a Bulgarian accent, too, <laughs> okay, by the way. There you go. So it's amazing. And that is the same kind of punctuated evolution, whatever you want to call it. Consciousness doesn't exist. It seems a long way off. Just like self-driving cars didn't exist and seemed a long way off until 2012, Google says, we're done. Here it is. It's driven 100,000 miles, and now it exists. It'll, it'll be that same kind of, uh, wow. We had, yeah, wow, we had no idea it was coming, and now it's here, and it happened. Just bang, it happened. Wow. And now, I watched a video with you where you were saying that on the way to the singularity, we have two great hurdles to overcome. One was language and another, well, the other was vision. And you've already mentioned Watson. So does that mean that we have already overcome the language hurdle? I, well, so when I think about language, I, I think Siri is fascinating or Google Voice, whichever flavor you prefer. But Siri, you can say to Siri, um, you know, what, what is today's weather? And she'll answer. You can say, uh, what is Apple's stock price? And she will, will answer that. But if you say, show me a graph of the last five years of Apple's stock prices, which you can get on Google Finance by just clicking one button, she, like, unless someone behind the scenes has has looked at that type of question and said, oh, how are we going to, you know, what are all the ways people could ask that question? And then how do we get the answer? Like that, that piece of it doesn't exist yet. Watson like, has that piece. Because that could be very well a question of Jeopardy or similar. And what I think Watson will do better on that question than Siri. Well, then we should... 
either we or Apple should marry Siri and Watson together. They're even gender compatible for a heterosexual <laughs> marriage, but, which isn't saying anything. I just bring that up. The, um, Your suggestion is to crossbreed Siri and Watson. Wow. Say, how long will it be before that happens? It just... Google. I mean, it will be as long as it takes for the international intellectual property lawyers to to get through all the, the marriage details and the That's prenuptial true. agreement. <laughs> Who gets what in a case of divorce, right? Isn't that what it's all about when you have two famous and rich people? That's true. Or we wait 17 years for the patents to expire or something, right? I it's but. That's inevitable. That is inevitable because Google would be so much better if you could just talk to it and say, "Show me Apple's stock price fluctuations over the last five years," instead of typing it and then reading the results and clicking on four of them until you get the thing you want. Like Google would love to solve that problem, or Google's next competitor would love to do that, and. And it doesn't seem like it's that far away. It, you know, it's not. But Watson is not there quite yet, in your view. It seems. It's. It's strangely absent from the public marketplace. You would. I think that's because of the way IBM is handling it, because they have the full property ownership and control over what it gets to be used for. And they want to be profitable, and so they're putting it towards profitable venues such as uh, customer support, such as medical diagnosis, right. uh, etc. So, uh, which are kind of fields where you can make easy kind of adaptation and monetization of the skills that Watson has. But interestingly enough, I interviewed David Ferrucci, who was the team leader behind Watson. And he himself was skeptical. He, in fact, failed to see any connection or a straight line, or he refused to acknowledge Watson as being a benchmark on the line of Ray Kurzweil towards the singularity. He yes. said that I don't see how we're going to get there from here. That's what David Ferrucci said anyway. Okay. Um, and people such as Noam Chomsky and uh, Marvin Minsky were both equally unimpressed, by the way. Nice. Uh, All right. On the other hand, we have a number of other individuals, not only Ray Kurzweil, but a number of other experts who have pointed as Watson as a great accomplishment. And I think it's amazingly impressive myself. Right. Uh, so talk a little bit about uh, computer vision then. That's the other requirements you speak about. Right. So if you look at the job landscape, there are there's something on the order of 50 million jobs that are protected by the fact that we don't have a general vision solution yet. So if you go to an assembly line at a car factory, the front end has all been totally automated. So the body is all welded together completely by robots. Then it goes to the paint shop and it's painted completely and it's rust proofed and it comes out and now it's time to put in the wiring harness. And that's where automation ends uh, because that the whole problem with floppy materials and the need to, you know, route it around things and stuff requires vision. And we, if you look on YouTube, you can see ABB has robots with vision systems that can detect pancakes on an assembly line, you know, of a conveyor belt. Yeah. And that is a pretty simple vision problem. Um, I've been to a, a nearly automated, uh, grain mill 
a, a gigantic, we take in trainloads of wheat and we mill it into flour to make noodles out of. That whole factory, like eight stories tall, no human beings. And the front end of that inspects every single grain of wheat. The train car comes in, it gets poured through this system that optically looks at every grain of wheat. And if it's the wrong shape or size or color, it gets flicked out by a jet of air. So every single grain is inspected. But the idea that I'm looking at you and I can say, that's your watch and your shirt is red with a microphone on it and your shoes are green with you know ankle length socks there's nothing in computer vision right now that can do that kind of um, visual analysis yeah disassembling of the of the field but there's so much incentive to create that and it's just like like chess computers people tink at it a little bit. You know, um, speech recognition went through the same process. It took 30 years, and then all of a sudden, it's really good. You know, it seems like all of a sudden, but it took 30 years of progress and thinking and research, and there it is. So if you look at what's happening inside of universities, and even like what um, NVIDIA has shown, they're they're demonstrating this year vision systems that can look out from a car's perspective and start to pick out things like stop signs and speed limit signs and traffic lights, which to us seems trivial, but to be able to do that in real time and accurately find all those things, that's amazing. And five years from now, 10 years from now, when that general system emerges, and a robot can now look at a shelf in Walmart and say, oh, let me rearrange all these things into nice, neat rows, and this is out of stock, and so is this. Let me, you know, let me fill those holes, and you can find carts in the parking lot and shove, you know, shove them back. You can mop the floor and see spills, and once all that is in place, then just when you think of how many jobs are going to be gone as soon as that system exists, which is inevitable and which is not 40 years from now, you know, it's five years or 10 years or 15 at, at the most, because that's just a tiny subset of, of what it is to be human. And mm-hmm. it, there's so much economic reward for a vision system then all construction workers are out of jobs, all fast food workers, all factory workers, all retail workers, all um, custodial. You know, like if you have a vision system, now you can have the robot that cleans your toilet. And every one of us wants one of those, right? Like, <laughs> no one wants to clean toilets. Depending how much they cost. <laughs> right. But, but the price will... It'll be high, and then it'll be lower and lower, and then it'll be a buck ninety-five for your toilet cleaning robot, and everyone will have one. So, if I were to ask you to put a percentage to our chances of surviving the technological singularity as a species, right? So, we have what you call now the second intelligent species come okay. to be, the AIs. What's our chance of survival? in terms of percentage, in your view, 
Define survival. That's a great question, right? So survival means one of two things, in my view. Either we continue existing in the way that we do right now. Okay. Or uh, or if we evolve and change in some way and become transhuman or posthuman or whatever, there's a direct line of continuity between us mm. and the next stage of humankind or humanity or transhumanism or whatever it may be called. Okay. But there's a direct line. So it's not like an indirect line where the AIs are our intellectual children, but we're not really connected to them. But there's a direct line in the sense, for example, like through human enhancement or some kind of merger of human and biological intelligence, there's a direct line of us as humanity into the new world and the new beings. Okay. Do you consider us being on preserves, like we put chimps on preserves to well, be that's, survival? That's, that's debatable, but I, I guess the answer would be, however unfortunate that may be, it's, it's somewhat of a yes, because we're still not dead, so, or at least not completely dead. So okay. it may be a horrible existence, or I don't know, maybe a blissful existence if, I don't know, if everyone thinks that living in a nice, condominium i guess and being right. stuck in a place and not allowed to go out is like nice and i bet you a lot of people would think i personally would feel it as a nice prison but still a prison so well so let me just take one small tangent right now we're pretty much constrained to a planet is earth a prison we're not constrained though right we are constrained only to the degree that our science and technology and imaginations constrain us to okay. remain here. And we have the capacity to break through those and to send things outside of the solar system, as we have done, okay. to send things to Mars, to send things to the moon. And so I believe that eventually, unless we destroy ourselves, we would, as Carl Sagan put it, populate the universe. And so we are not in a prison. We are just held back by this challenge, which is very different. Okay. Whereas in, the, in your case, we will definitely be constrained. True. Okay. So I think there's a 0% chance that we will populate the universe. So let's start with that. And I think wow. there is – well, because – a biological being is so inferior to what will be the second intelligence species in terms of its consciousness platform and its mobility platform. Like we just the idea of going to Mars is, is hard to imagine if just take the, the radiation problem or the low gravity problem, or, you know, there's so many things that you like Mars just, probably isn't going to happen for human beings. Um, we can create cyborgs. We can create right? enhanced humans whose biology is more, more tolerant to radiation, more tolerant to uh, fluctuations in gravity, more tolerant to certain kinds of, you know, environmental conditions and so on. So in other words, we would have a wider spectrum of survival than we currently do. Could. 
And I know there's a lot of thought about merging humans and machines in various ways and so on. I put that in the same category as populating the universe. I don't, I don't see the point. Um, but the living on preserves, like the second intelligent species appears and then it constrains us in some way. I, I would think that that's a logical path, but I think the more likely thing for it to do would be to connect us. Like if you think about the human brain as a computer and right now it's interfaced into a set of sensors and a set of muscles, actuators, then it's easy to imagine taking that computer and connecting it into a virtual environment instead of a real environment. I I could easily imagine the second intelligent species saying, well, we can't kill all these folks off, but we can make them much happier if we just stick them into this simulated world. The Matrix. Uh, I don't think the Matrix... Wasn't the core philosophy of the Matrix that we had to suffer? No, no. Basically, we're... We, well, whatever the details of the movie may have been, mm-hmm. let's say you're very happy, but you are okay. in this kind of imaginary, artificial, virtual world, which right. is controlled from outside and that you're not aware of. You think right. it's real, right? So yes. that's basically the idea of the Matrix, right? You're a prisoner without you knowing it right. in this virtual simulation that's controlled by the artificial intelligences. Right. And so if you think about that, if the if the second intelligent species can take a brain and say, what would make this brain maximally happy? Let's just plug it into that. And each one of us gets plugged into our own simulated universe that is utterly fantastic. Customized just for Marshall right. Brain, just the way he likes it. Sure. And it's done that way for 9 billion people or however many there are at the time. That seems like an ethical and completely doable end point for humanity. They have us out of the way. Like we're, we're no longer killing each other or destroying the environment, but there can be no question that we're happier than we are because we're in an ideal universe for each of us. Um, that's possible to imagine. That's possible. Yeah. But I don't know if that would be a better end than even the current situation we're in. And I mean, that reminds me to what Socrates said once. He said, uh, or was it one of his students? But he said, better Socrates unsatisfied than pig satisfied. So I think, yeah, you're going to have lots of, quote, happy people satisfied by being given everything they want, perhaps every time they want in their virtual world of abundance where nothing is scarce, etc. right? Right. And everything is perfect and customized just for them, but... That will be an illusion. That will be like being stuck in Plato's cave of, 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 of the shadows and mistaking the shadows you see on the wall for the real world. That, in my books, is a tragedy. It's, it's an illusion, okay. and, and it's a sad end to our species, personally. Okay. I think for a lot of humanity... You may be right. They would may, maybe maybe a lot of people would take that choice. But here's my problem. I okay. still think that there will be sufficiently enough people who would rather not take that choice. And they 
to be ethical, that system has to give them a way out. I think you cannot lock people in that condition indefinitely without their awareness or free freedom of choice. And I think you have to give... It's like, for example, I live in Ontario in Canada. Okay. North of Toronto, we have a few communities of Amish and Mennonites yes. who have made the choice to live at, I don't know, mid-18th century, late-18th century technology. Right. And I respect that. But they do have the choice to do so or not to do so. And okay. we have the choice. I have the choice to go join them if I want to and start, you know, I don't know, grazing sheep and making mm-hmm. yogurt and, mm-hmm. and cheese or whatever, or not to do it. But the problem is the lack of choice. You see what I'm saying is sure. that in your system, and, and I think you cannot have an ethical system without that choice. Well, then you might enjoy the book Mana, <laughs> because uh, the book Mana is, is that... Um, that philosophy with the robots being or one of the two options presented. Well, that's true. The the second option, the Australia project, is the robots are almost invisible. But talk to us first about the first option. What is Mana? Two views of humanity's future all about. So its goal is to look at two possible ways that humanity could have its future unfold depending on the choices we make. And it tends to um, to take everything out to its extremes. So in, in doing that, and that has a number of people who read it are somewhat pissed off by that. Um, and let me give you an example in. So in the first, version of humanity's future we're all imprisoned in welfare dormitories essentially big brown cubes which house humans on junk land tell us a little bit more about how that scenario unfolds because like people would fail to connect the dots from today to being stuck in dormitories and stuff like that okay so tell us how that happens in that scenario well, so if you look at the world as exists, at least in the United States today, you have a growing inequality between the haves and the have-nots. And you hear words like the hollowing out of the middle class and um, jobless recovery, uh, all that kind of stuff. So there comes a point where the haves decide that they don't want to think think about or look at the have-nots anymore because you it have you been to seattle recently yeah i was there a year and a half ago or think so i was there like two weeks ago the number of homeless people in seattle is kind of um remarkable and unnerving so if you're a you know, a have, a a well-to-do person, and you're walking around in Seattle, it might occur to you, I don't want to look at all these homeless people sitting on street corners and holding up their signs and asking me for a dollar, like, 
like in Seattle, it seemed like every two minutes someone was asking you for a dollar again. It really was was odd. So that decision is made. We don't want to have to deal with the have-nots anymore. So, you know, from a welfare standpoint, it's much more efficient to just say, let's take all the have-nots and start housing them and feeding them as efficiently as possible in order, you know, this continual desire to push down the cost of welfare or the safety net. You know, one thing is to eliminate it and you get all these homeless people. Well, if you want to actually contain them, you're going to put them in these really low-cost welfare dorms and you're going to feed them in a cafeteria and you're going to put a big fence around it and they're out of sight, out of mind at that point. And, you and have, your argument is that in the process called uh, increasing technological unemployment right. and the hollowing of the middle class, more and more people would find themselves to be homeless because, as you put it in the United States, if you are unable to work, you're unable to eat and right. you find yourself on the street. And at certain level, when that problem aggregates to a certain scale, then people would take measures. And right. the measures you think that are likely to be taken are basically house them and feed them in a sort of a dormitory kind of a style. Right. Which I, is again like another version of like a nice nice Auschwitz. Right. Except a nice concentration camp for for poor homeless hungry people. Exactly. Only if you extrapolate out from where we are today, there's this huge political pressure to to cut welfare spending and so on. So it's not going to be a luxurious Auschwitz. It's going to be the cheapest thing we can build to house 3D people. 3D printed buildings <laughs> right. with robots for attendees and guards and... And you know the cheapest food possible, and you get your little tiny space that you sleep in, like and, a dorm room, right? And you have a roommate and a bed, a bed bunk, and you have washrooms at the end and, and showers at the end of the corridor. Exactly the the cheapest thing possible, and now you can have these glittering, beautiful cities full of the haves and the have-nots have been shuttered away where you don't have to think about them anymore. And that is a logical extrapolation of where we're at today in the United States. I don't know if the political climate somehow moderates and gets to a point where we can do a basic income or something, but in our current trajectory, that seems like Okay, before we get to the basic income idea, I want to talk to you about why is that even going to be the case, or why is technological unemployment even a real thing because many economists would absolutely deny that, right? People would say, look, mm. since the beginning of the industrial evolution, when, you know, the spinning jenny weaving machines started replacing the first hand weavers, right. you know, and, and Ned Lutt and a bunch of his friends started breaking the machines and the first, you know, Luddite rebellions took place. We have only gotten better off, you know, the Industrial Revolution just created a lot of turmoil, replaced, you know, a lot of shepherds, turned them to be, you know, proletariat, as Marx called them, or workers. And they eventually became the middle class because their jobs got to be better and better paid, mm -hmm. their uh, vacation got to be better and better, 
their ability to buy stuff got to be higher and higher. Uh, so eventually had middle class suburbia with two garages, two cars and kids in college. Right. So people would say we have only gotten better. And why do you think that things would be any different from now? I mean, robots replacing humans is like the spinning Jenny replacing Ned Ludd and his buddies. It's because we are developing the second intelligent species. And that species now competes with us for every job category. And there simply is not going to be anything left for human beings to do. There's no reason, you know, like Walmart employs 2 million people in the United States. Yeah, one, just that one, one company. Five, six, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's a big, a big number. You Once the vision system exists, those people aren't going to have jobs anymore, and neither are truck drivers, and neither are construction workers, and neither are the custodial folks. Like, it's it's... Basically, all the jobs are not going to exist because there's a species that's going to outcompete us in every job category. Okay, but someone would say, Marshall, you know, Walmart workers are the low end of the pay scale, usually minimum wage people. Sure. We are more concerned about the middle age here. The, supposedly, the middle age is what makes a country go democracy. Okay. And gives the strength of the economy. Etc. Etc. So, why would we be worried about the middle class people? Because that sector of the economy is the most uh, under pressure right now. And truck drivers, again, just to use them as an example, are a great example. A truck driver makes a pretty good living. Uh, you know, they used to at least. Well, they, you know, if you're driving for UPS or FedEx or you know, a grocery store chain, or you're a professional truck driver and you're, you have health insurance and you have a good wage and you have vacation time. And so it's a middle-class job. Yeah. And there's a million folks like that in the United States. It's a big, you know, sector of the economy. It's guaranteed that in 10 years at the most, the technology exists to replace those, and the technology will be better in every way compared to a human being. So those jobs will evaporate. Just like, you know, it used to be that every single call was routed by a human person, right? Uh, an operator who plugged wires into patch panels. Mm -hmm. And then a mechanical device came and replaced all of them. And... That was okay at that point, but now that kind of competition is going to happen in every single job. And there just aren't, you know, we have the option of saying everybody who gets unemployed is going on to welfare or everyone who gets unemployed is going on to perpetual vacation. And at the moment, we're, we're definitely in the welfare mindset you don't get to go on perpetual vacation when a robot replaces your truck driver job <laughs> that mm -hmm. is not how we're wired mm -hmm. so what's the timeline to that kind of occurrence in your view when will we start seeing the real measures of technological unemployment because if what you say is true it will be massive 
It yeah. will be millions upon millions of people. Now, I think the Great Depression was about 25% of unemployment. I would agree. Uh, so what's the kind of cutoff point or the point where economists will be unable to deny that fact <laughs> anymore and will all of us will have to confront that reality that perhaps it's a fact? I think what... what uh, let me back up one second. So this has happened before, like in the case of operators and more recently... Um, Bank tellers have undergone that because of ATM machines. Travel agents have undergone it because of the internet. Like travel agencies used to be every shopping mall. Like there was a right. travel agent and there were people who got you plane tickets. You right. couldn't do it as a human being. Right, right. All that evaporated. But those were small enough that we didn't really notice it, but I think truck drivers will be an interesting case because it will happen quickly. Mm. It will happen in the near future and it will happen to a group of people who are not traditionally thought of as shrinking violets. So they're going to lose their jobs in massive numbers and they're going to be vocal about it. And mm -hmm. I think at that point, we will all start to pay attention to it, not just economists, but the general population will say, wow, that is interesting and tragic, and we need to start thinking about this. And then as the vision system thing comes into play 10 or 15 years from now, that's where the shit's going to hit the fan. And you're, you know, you're talking about tens of millions of people who are going to see their jobs threatened. And at that point, yeah, what I do we do? What do we do? Yeah. Uh, what do we do at that point? How do we handle that situation? It's going to be a crisis. Millions of people without work, as you said, in, in, in the United States, the general right. idea is if you don't work, you don't eat, right. or you don't get housed, or you don't get health care, or <laughs> whatever. Right. So you end up on... Get, and, and most people are probably, let's say, two or three paychecks away from bankruptcy. Oh, so, closer than that in a lot of cases. I, I think in the United States, it's like 30% are one paycheck. Like, they're just living paycheck to paycheck. Okay, so so then what do we do? How do we handle such a massive crisis in your view? We, as a society, would need to redesign the economy to understand that we can all be on either greatly reduced work schedules or straight up on perpetual vacation and make that happen. So so full-time employment would be at 10 work hours a week? That's one very logical conclusion. And if you go back to economists in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, that's exactly what they expected. Because we had just, you know, we evolved to the point of understanding that the concept of let's get rid of child labor and let's make up this idea of a 40-hour work week and give people the weekends off and let's give people health insurance. And, like, all that stuff evolved in the 40s, the you know, in the 50s. That all came into place like a miracle be through the efforts of, of millions of people who fought for it. But, but people in the United States would recoil and would say, what you're talking <laughs> about is the welfare state. And they would say, we know 
the welfare state system has failed. And we know that that's what you call socialism. And therefore, we refuse to accept that as an option. What do you say to that? I mean, I, I talked to Seth Godin about this on my yeah. show, and he said it has to be, first of all, called something else rather than guaranteed minimum income or basic income, because <laughs> first of all, from PR point of view, it would never sell in the United States because people instantly would have that kind of thing like, oh, it's socialism and we don't want it. Right. So you have to be smarter about it. You have to call it something else and you have to basically find a different way, way to sell it. But can we even like hope to do that? Yes, and I think, well, two thoughts. One is the folks who think that that's socialism and bad were probably the same folks who thought that the elimination of child labor was bad. Like, oh, no, children should be forced to work starting at age five because it builds character or whatever. They would have their logic. That group of people, um, fortunately, seems to be losing its clout in our in our social Is environment. It? Well, that's a good question. But the two things that give us hope uh, are one, the rapid evolution of thinking around the whole gay marriage issue. I agree. Yeah, that changed very quickly from anti-gay to pro-gay. Right. Yes. So if you go back to the year 2000, In a decade or so. Yeah, the year yeah. 2000, zero states had legal gay marriage. Yeah. And this week, was it this week? It became yeah. the law in the United yeah. States nationwide. So that's 15 years from zero to uniform. That was very impressive. Right. And the other is marijuana legalization. Same thing, yeah. So there's a really cool graph that shows a polling company's data on on legalization. So they asked the question going back 40 years, uh, should marijuana be legalized? And if you go back 40 years, it was like 5% said yes and 95% said no. And that graph, let me do it from your perspective, that graph starts here and it goes like this, 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 this. And in 2013, the lines crossed for the first time. So it took 40 years for that thinking but the year after the lines crossed, Colorado legalized marijuana. And so right now, basic income, you're right. If anybody even knows about it, which the vast majority of society has never even heard of the concept, if they know about it and they think it's socialism or communism or whatever pejorative they want to attach to it, that is happening, but that same evolution of thinking at that same kind of pace can happen and probably will happen because we're going to see so much change happening in the job market so rapidly that it it, it will become yeah it will become inevitable. We just so won't are you tolerate. An optimist then? I am very hopeful that we end up in the second part of mana that we as a society evolve into that. Um, but I do admit that we have been working, you know, the concept of work and survival goes back tens of thousands of years. So it does have a bit of inertia that we're going to have to overcome. Um, 
So describe to us the second the second option in mana. What you call in the book is the Australian project, right? So where everything is free and and right. what else? Well, the the notion is that if that robots have come to the point where they can make all the food and clothing and housing and products and so on, and so. The only real constraint on anything is the resource constraints. So in the book, a person has purchased the whole continent of Australia and has turned it into a utopian robotic world where the robots are not out in the open. You know, they're not... Um, they're our slaves, basically. Right. They're behind the scenes. They're making everything we need and, and keeping it nice, but it's not like every other thing you see in your environment is a robot. It's mm -hmm. how mana is portrayed. Um, and so that is a logical extension of where technological unemployment and automation will take us. The notion that every human can go on perpetual vacation because the robots are doing all the labor that is required for humans to live. And it, you know, one analogy would be, it's like you're on a cruise ship all the time. And on a cruise ship, you don't have to work and, and the food is brought to you and the drinks are brought to you. And, and it's buffet all the way. <laughs> and so there's, the timeline is open to question. Like, is it Kurzweil's 2045 or is it Wozniak's 2200? You know, or, that's open. I, I'm way on the Kurzweilian view that it's going to happen much sooner rather than later. But there's no reason why humans can't go on perpetual vacation and will evolve to make that happen, hopefully. Let me give you another analogy. You gave okay. the analogy of a cruise ship. A critic would say, a critic from the right would say, what you're talking about is socialism with robots. Okay. Where everything is free, everyone is equal, and all the work is done by robots. But it's still socialism. Okay. I guess the question I would ask that sort of person is, A, what's wrong with that? If the robots exist and can do all the labor. There's, well, let me give you a quote from your book, for example. You say, uh, ownership is the problem in one place in your book. Right? Yes. So in the Australian project, there is no ownership. Like capitalism right. is based on property. My capital, my land, my whatever. You are proposing that that's not a solution, that's the problem, actually. And the mm -hmm. way you, which people instantly would say, if you get away with property and you nationalize everything, that's got to be communism. And you make everyone equal in a way, that's got to be communism. And so it's like communism with robots. And why is it wrong? Because I've earned with my hard work, my own stuff, whatever it may be, my palace, my farmland, or my ancestors did, or whatever. I've earned it with the sweat of my eyebrow. You cannot take away this from me, and, and I deserve it. And no one else, and I have the right to, exclusive, to, to put exclusivity on access to the resources 
associated with whatever that thing may be, whether it's water or land or whatever. Okay. You know. That's a philosophy, yes. I think. And so people would oppose it on a philosophical, ethical basis, too. Because in their form of ethics, they would say it's unjust that, you know, people would be equal and that everything would be free and that you would not get to hold an, ex an exclusive dominion over the fruits of your own labor. It's a philosophy. Uh, so let's go back a couple hundred years in United States history and... Um, European settlers are coming over to the United States. There's tens of millions of Native Americans who live here. They right? were kind of communist in that sense too, right? Right, because they didn't they, have they ownership. They shared everything, right? right. And, yes. and so that entire continent is overwhelmed and taken over and at that time, if you were the Duke of Lansbury or whoever you were, you could be bequeathed, here's a hundred thousand acres of America that's yours. Okay, so now the king has bequeathed to the Duke of Lansbury this hundred thousand acres. There was no sweat of a brow or there was nothing that bestowed that upon him except the decree of one person to another. And many of us today would say, that's really unfair. And that person having that 100,000 acres and that person's descendants are given a gigantic advantage over the rest of humanity that has no basis in anything except history. It's like that whole system of thought could be described as ludicrous. And there are a lot of things that uh, happen today that are just as ludicrous in the current capitalistic system that if they were subjected to rational analysis and if we took into the account the needs of the 7 billion folks on the planet instead of the property owners, we would probably think differently. So let me get this straight. So you think that we need a systemic change. In other words, capitalism cannot resolve those inherent problems of grand technological unemployment, environmental degradation, etc. that you're describing. So and a, to, yes. to resolve the issues, we need to move beyond in a new system. We need to have a better way of thinking about how the world works. And yes. I mean, not only thinking, but of organizing it right. and acting on it and everything. Like, we need a new social-political system. Yeah, a contract. But, and and even in the United States... So if it's not communism, what did, what is it then? It is probably very much like the Australia Project in MANA. That is um, my blueprint mm -hmm. for how the world could be. And in that world, um, everybody, you know, you, you talked about the sweat of the brow and, and so on. Um, the interesting thing about the Australia Project is that everybody bought into it with a $1,000 stake. So in the book, a billion people put in $1,000 to accumulate a trillion-dollar pot 
that purchases the continent of Australia and enough resources to make it go. Uh, so they truly can all be equal without, um, without a lot of strings attached to it. So that is a, a way of conceptually understanding that they all started equal. There's no reason why any of them should receive more of the resources than any of the other people. And they're all able to receive so many resources, you know, so many products and services and so on, because they're all free. They're all produced by robots that are all doing the labor that human beings used to do. I think in a way what you're describing is also what Peter Diamandis calls uh, abundance. Yes, he's got a whole book on that. We have gone beyond scarcity and because those materials are uh, available for free and they're recyclable for free and can be turned into another product at any time, then we live in an in a in an environment of abundance rather than scarcity, which allows for a lot of freedom and new possibilities. It does, as long as we've recognized that letting wealth concentrate into a small number of people is not beneficial to the species. So, what do you think are the chances of this realization to go? Sorry, sufficiently high enough at let's say in North America. I think the chances of that are equal to the chances of gay marriage getting legalized in all 50 states. When really? we Yes. If we were to go back to 1990 and say, what are the chances of marijuana being legalized or gay marriage being legalized? And we would have thought, zero. zero. Yes. Right. And now we look at it and we say, wow, it happened. Like, it's done deal. I think despite the fact that it looks impossible at this moment, 15 or 20 years from now, it will look so different because the technology will have advanced so far so fast that we will be, we will look back on this video and we will, we will be surprised at how depressing it looked. So basically what you're talking about in that second case, the Australian project is what you call heaven on earth. Right. Which is kind of a utopian or near utopian kind of socio-political system where people get what they want when they want it for free and, and live in an amazing kind of environment where robots are the foundation of the economy and produce whatever we need to consume. Right. Really, the only limitation is in the Australia project, First, everything's completely sustainable. And second, there are limited, there's a core limit to resources. So we can't all say, hey, I want a million pounds of gold, because there simply isn't a million pounds of gold yes, of in existence. Yeah. So there are limitations. Right. That, that, but they're reasonable limitations. Sure, that prevent infinite consumption. So a lot of people think, oh, well, if it's all free, I can have as much of anything. And that's not true in the second, you know, in the Australia project. you Everybody is given a, a number of credits per week, which is far more than we could spend, but it, there is some limit to what we can consume. Mm-hmm. Well, Marshall, we've been discussing those issues with you for 
over, well over an hour by now. Okay. And I hope we have given our audience lots of food for thought and new avenues for intellectual stimulation and investigation. Okay. So let me ask you, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? If you come to marshallbrain.com, everything I've written is on there for free. And you're welcome to come read it there. A lot of people prefer to read it on a Kindle device and the lowest price Amazon will let me charge is 99 cents. So mm -hmm. all this stuff is on Mm -hmm. the Kindle for 99 cents. But the fact that it's out there for free means, for example, Mana has been read by millions of people. And it's it's just so cool that it's been able to get out like that. And I hope it's a seed. Yeah, and I have to say, writing that book in 2003, even before, a couple of years before The Singularity is Near and so on, is a pretty, pretty impressive accomplishment. And... Uh, mm -hmm kind of rather visionary uh, I, oh. I would say okay. um, so what's the best way to wrap up our conversation today what's the parting message that you'd like us to take away from this conversation with you today I think the the part that's most important to me is the next two decades, for example, have the ability to be excruciatingly painful for billions of people. Or if we can evolve quickly, have the potential to be the most fantastic period of human existence in history. And I would very much like for us to choose the latter and to evolve very quickly to the point where we're reducing time in the work week where we're solving all diseases, you know, eliminating all diseases for everyone on the planet, where we're raising the standard of living of everyone so that we're essentially equal and there's no longer people by the billions living on $2 a day while we're over here living in stunning luxury compared to them. Mm -hmm. We have everything in place to make the world phenomenally better for everyone. And we simply have to evolve to the point where we make the decision to do that. I hope we can. So it's the make or break couple of decades that we're approaching. Right. It is a fascinating, unbelievable amount of change that's going to occur over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Marshall Brain, thank you very much for being with us today. You're the man. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad we had the time. My pleasure.